that jarring cacophony tells you that once again you're listening to that Scottish podcast, the one with those blokes that talk about those things. And the thing we're talking about this week is once again a target novelisation. I'm one of those blokes. I'm Kenny Smith, and I'm joined by another of those blokes. Hello, everyone. I'm David Steele here. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. It's always good to see you, Dave, and welcome back. And of course, it's time for another target novelisation. How have you got yours through? Yes, they arrived yesterday, um, and it's quite funny because on on my Time Hop app today is, is we record this on the fourteenth of July. My photographs of last year's books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame they didn't arrive today because then it would have been a year today. But that, I suppose that means within three hundred and sixty-five days, I got you know two lots of target books. If you want to look at it that way, so that's good. Yes, and I and I I bit the bullet last night and removed the pinnacle editions from my shelves so that I could fit <gasps> the new ones on and put a couple other ones in. A couple of reprints that that taken out back in, so um, the, the pinnacles are now set adrift. But I suppose it means that, that my shelves are more authentically Target. Yes. Did you get the new ones yourself? Oh yes, I, we know that you got the new ones. We yes, know that I, I, because um, because <laughs> the BBC. Were, yeah, I know because the BBC were they um, became aware. BBC Books came aware of what we've been doing when we did our first chat um, a few weeks back when we spoke about. Um, the fires of Pompeii with James Moran, and right. um, they obviously were they were very pleased with it, and were kind enough to send through some copies of the new ones for review and obviously for chats with the authors. Our license fee at work there, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, BBC Books is a private commercial enterprise. No, so no, no, I know. I'm just being silly. I know. Ah, yes, perfect. I mean they're lovely. I am. I just sit and look at them each one for like ten minutes, and because the covers are gorgeous. They really are. Anthony does a great job as always. They're beautiful. Yeah. And it's nice to sort of be like that's nearly a full probably roughly a full season's worth of modern episodes that have been yeah. novelized now. Let's have a quick look. Um, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. You're absolutely right, Dave. Well done. I wouldn't thank you. Um I wouldn't be surprised if the um you know, if we got some more next year and maybe perhaps the paperback of Fraser Hines' new version of Evil of the Daleks was included. You know, because they do like to get a balance between, you know, some new series books and a couple of, you know, a couple of old series. So this year we obviously got, um, we got Warriors Gate, expanded Warriors Gate last year with David Fisher's versions of his, his two Key at Time stories. And I think previous year we got the paperbacks of the two Eric Sayward. That's right. Dalek stories came out around at the same time as a couple of other new series books. So I think, uh, you know, I think going forward, it'd be, it would be so cool. I mean, it would be nice to get a regular novelization programming instead of maybe say five books once a year if we got five or six books scattered of you know through the year maybe one every couple of months or something no i I want one a month one a month for me just like it used to be there's enough stories there now yeah yeah no i'm just trying to be mildly practical and think about the the financial implications of it all but it'll be nice i mean it's it's you know because i remember i went down to the, the signing in london five years ago when just over five years ago now when um the books that that Russell T and Mr Moffat and um Mr Cornell and the others had you know they and there was a feeling then it was it was almost like a one off so it's great that they're still going it's great that we've had a few more since then I think in the past we might have talked about which books we'd like still yep. to see novelised I think we should probably have another one of those chats at the end of the, this episode actually yes but it's good to see some more I'd like I, you know I'm glad that each Doctor's had a couple I'd like to see a couple more Eleventh Doctor books I think. 
Yes, um, definitely. I've got a couple of uh, thoughts about which ones I'd like to see, but again, we'll keep that for later. But uh, So which, which book are we focusing on today then, Kenneth? Well, it is Planet of the Ud, which we're going to have a wee look at today, which um, I had a lovely chat yesterday with Keith Temple about it, yesterday as we record. In fact, no, it wasn't. It was the other day. doesn't matter. We had a lovely chat with Keith Temple and... Uh, Big fan because as I spoke to him, sitting behind him was the complete set of original targets. Wonderful. So well, technically sitting behind me over in that corner, there's a complete set of original targets as well. Yeah, but what it just you? shows he's one of us. Mine are, in the lo- mine are in the loft because I just have I don't have enough shelf space. So I've got all the yeah. new ones over there and I've got right. some uh, original Doctor books over there and I've got like the, the complete DWM comic strip collection. Various hardbacks yeah. there, the Doctor in the Daleks book, the Vault Regeneration, the Big Finish Companions Volume 1, and the superb, the sold-out Big Finish Companion Volume 2, and um, <laughs> the Target book, The Who Adventures, and a couple of script books from, from Richard Bignall, Farewell, Great Macedon and Prisoner in the, the Prison in Space, plus also down there, the complete run of the Complete History hardback series, which I have all 90 volumes of as I was a subscriber back in the day, and it's still a creature of beauty to my mind. So, <sighs> But yes, uh, we're going to have a wee chat about it. And of course, let's have a quick chat about the TV episode first, because I know we both watched it last night because we were texting about it. <laughs> yes, we're um, a little bit of homework and preparation. I hadn't watched it in a very long time, and I kind of, I was I was mindful of a few criticisms about the episode that was, that was sort of in place, you know, when I was watching it. I think you know we'll get it out of the way. There's sort of almost elephant in the room that there's a you know people suggesting that it's not the best because the Doctor and Donna don't really contribute to it. Um, and I was kind of had that in mind, but the thing that really struck me the most was just how good it looked. The visuals are amazing. I mean, they hope for 15 you know 15 years ago. It just shows how good the technology was then. And, um, th- you know, Thunderbird three, as it were, flying over the Doctor and Donna at the start. The, yeah. The seamless sort of. Um, merging of the the location stuff with the with the rendered material the all the stuff around the the come you know the the compound and um it's is is glorious i mean um the, the accusation that's flung at it the, the, the sense that i the sense that i got watching it was i was reminded of certain sort of hartnell stories where the doctor kind of tells ian or whoever that they can't interfere um it was almost like the doctor and donna were just sort of Watching the inevitable, being part of a little bit of history—that was the sort. Of, that was the vibe that I got from it. I couldn't help but think that that was deliberate. So I'm basically I'm refuting the allegations that the Doctor and Donna are too passive, and that the the whole thing about um, that it's a bad thing that everything would have happened without them. Because I don't I don't think that was the point. Anyway, what are your thoughts? I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's a very clever story. I think the fact that we get to see and learn a lot more about the Ood, who we thought mm. just want, I mean they look fantastic it's such a wonderful design totally memorable yes. absolutely I, I think they're probably the most sort of um, effective sort of visual new, new series monster I think if I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that Weeping Angels are a brilliant idea but they're just statues I remember the first time I saw a photograph of one of the Ood I was like oh my god what's all that spaghetti hanging out of his face his giblets hanging it's disgusting and it's and it's great and you have the juxtaposition of the, the very mannered, polite, you know, we must feed sort of voice sort of thing. Yeah. I think they're I think they're the most effective new series monster. Yeah, and I think uh, Keith did a great job with them, and I think that you're giving them the 
the backstory. I mean, there's some truly horrifying stuff. They were talking about having brains surgically removed to, to make mm. them into slave race. And I think that is, there's something really grisly in that. And it, again, it's sort of, it's sort of like turning people into mindless slaves by depriving of them of, you know, giving them a chance to have yeah. original thoughts. And it's, I, I mean, it's, I think it's subtly done and it's not laboured. Yeah, there's a lot of obviously political stuff and the, the doctor makes the comment, you know, the doctor and Donald talk about slaves and such things and, and Davy says, who, who do you think made your clothes? And and you think, yes, that's very tough, even now because Primark and, and other sort of shops are even more popular than they were 15 years ago. Um, it's it's very pointed about consumerism and such like. I mean, I love the scenes where the where the, the Uda being demonstrated to potential buyers and all the talk about, you know, reducing the prices to try and encourage more sales. And yeah. um, and it's it's interesting because, you know, they're set up an impossible planet in the same pit and you're just like, all right. And and the Doctor has a couple of lines in, in Planet of the Uda where he reflects on how, what a bad job he did of sort of not trying to save them and, and all that sort of thing. So he has that sort of guilt on it. And it's and it's a shame there wasn't some kind of maybe little sort of catalyst type thing that the Doctor and Don were able to do that maybe instigated. But, you know, the events of this one. But, you know, it's 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 also interesting. The uh, I was reminded of um some of the stuff where, you know, the guy who'd been working, I forget that, the character now, his name, but the chap who'd been working undercover for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, turned things around. And I was reminded of st- stories like... Um, Power of Crawl and Colony in Space, yeah. where this sort of future corporate stuff is going on, and, and there are people who aren't completely into it and on side. So I think it was it was an interesting one. I think it it very consistent with the sort of message Doctor Who has had in the past about, and it, you know it's also very interesting that Kablam was novelised in this little batch because that's another one, um, which has an, a, a very you know on-the-nose look at modern sort of corporate sensibilities, shall we say, and I'm sure you're going to be talking about, about that in another episode, so we won't say too much more about it. Um, but it's it's very, it fits in, as, as I say, I think Colony in Space and um, Power of Crow and such like, when it, it's one of these ones that kind of holds up a mirror to aspects of our own society and filters it through Doctor Who, and I think Doctor Who is always at its best when it does that. Very much so. I mean, I think that, you mean, you mentioned there the regarding the clothesline, not not where you put clothes to dry, but the line about where your clothing yeah. comes from, and and uh, obviously we'll, I'll mention that to Keith shortly. But uh-huh. I I I mentioned when I was working at the time at the Rutherford Reformer, we had a freelance photographer who came in and she was you know she watched TV and she knew I was a Doctor Who fan because obviously things what I have on my desk or had on my desk, and she was yeah. saying that she found that a really moving sort of social story and the fact that it just shows you, it gets you thinking and particularly it's done in such a subtle way, it'll get the kids thinking, sort of like actually I'll ask questions and they'll possibly go and Google it and perhaps develop a social conscience and it's done in a subtle way, it's not ram at home to say this is you know, mm-hmm. you know, know, corporate evil but it sort of mm-hmm. makes you question sort of where do you get your things from and can you make an alternative exactly. choice I like that, I really like that and I think that great cast, I think even like in the pre-credits, we've got Paul Clayton, of course, who's better known to Big Finish fans as Mr. Colchester in Torchwood, who's superb, and he's in the Full Monty TV series as well, uh, of, re- of of note of late. And I think he's superb, just that wonderful gravelly voice of his. And then he just gets bumped off before the titles have even rolled. But I just think there's, it's wonderfully done. And the, the way that Ood kill, it's, it's the using their ball. And again, it's something you can imitate with a tennis ball if you're a kid. It's just, it's, 
great yeah. to do. It was, um, I was really impressed by how much depth there was in it because, I, you know, I've talked in the past on the podcast about how Mr. Moffat seemed very shy about such things. And if he didn't kill, if he did kill someone off nine times, it would tend to bring them back in some way or another. But it was another one that made it feel like proper old school Doctor Who. It had a real sense of the mid period Pertwee's or the, the mid period Tom Baker's about it when, you know, supporting cast members have been dropped left, right, and centre. Um, and, you know, there are some good. I mean, they, I remember, I remember having the dry bulk, as we say in Scotland, hmm. when the tap fell into the giant brain the first yes. time we watched it. And the bit when Tim McKennedy, that horrible sequence when, you know, his transformation into a nude is sort of completed and, you know, the giblets fall out of his mouth and his skull and his scalp peels away. That's horrendous. I was yeah. astonished they, you know, they got away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, watching that now and you think, my goodness, that's more explicit and nasty than anything the original series did. So, you know, yeah. well done, Graham. Well done, Keith. Well done, Russell. All that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, why have I, I mean, my first thought when I finished rewatching was, why did I not watch this more often? Because it is so good. It's one of those gems. It's that series four. There's just such a vibe going. The Doctor and Dawn relationship's great. And there's so many yeah. good stories in there. And perhaps because the second half of the season has got that energy building up towards that climax that perhaps we don't yeah. always look at the first half as much as we should. Well, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I remember loving see, I remember getting to part one of the St. Anne's story and just saying, this is the best thing ever because it was just so consistent. I love season four. The only episodes I don't like in season four are well known, um, and I won't I won't go on about that again because I probably moaned about it enough in the past. Um, I skip out the library episodes anytime I watch it, quite frankly. But there you go. That's just me. The rest of it's just brilliant. It's proper solid Doctor Who. It knows what it needs to do, and this is a really really good example. Maybe a little bit overlooked in some ways, which I'm glad it's been given a novelisation because you know it might lead people to kind of do what we did and watch the episode again and go, actually, do you know what? There is some brilliant stuff in here. Yeah, it's it's nice when you find that something, even though it's what 2008 to actually rediscover something that's comparatively recent and it's the way that you know people discovered the enemy of the world thought actually this is a really good story and hopefully this people go back and think actually this is a cracking wee gem of a story yeah one thing another thing i should mention was um a lot of the publicity we've seen recently because obviously david Tennant and captain tate are coming back for these specials late in the year so we've seen we've seen quite a lot of images of them as they are now and it was fascinating watching this and just thinking how how young they both looked <laughs> dt looked like a baby <laughs> that was quite fun just sort of you know going oh wow gosh you know how much you know how much younger we all were 15 years ago it's crazy yeah and of course something i should mention is that keith actually lived in glasgow and near loch lomond for a while all right spent a few years cool. he lived he lived in partick for a bit before he moved back down south so, of right. course, that's uh, an added benefit getting somebody with a Scottish connection on to Scotland's number one Doctor Who podcast. Really? Uh, so we like to, I'm sure there are, I know there are others out there, but we've been going oh, probably the longest. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, there's Pieces of Eight. That's, a, that's another Scottish Doctor Who podcast. <laughs> cool. Yeah, there's, there's others done by other people, but... Uh, and, um, um, technically, you're playing, you're currently, as we speak, playing a Doctor in episodes that are releasing at the moment of the Earth 2 podcast. So that's, that's another... true. Scottish Doctor Who yes. podcast, of mm-hmm. releasing uh, the same day as this episode as well, of course. But we'll give it a wee plug in for that later on. So we've had our say on it. We love it, and let's hear from the man who wrote it and the novelisation. Hello, I'm, I'm Keith Temple, writer of Planet of the Ood, a tenth Doctor adventure from 2008. 
Yep, the 19th of April it was broadcast, which is quite scary. It was. When I look back on it, it's sort of, you know, if you compare it to the sort of the time scale of the original series, 1963 to 89, I'll be sort of towards the end of, it'll be my equivalent of writing an unearthly child, but in the time of Tom Baker's era. It's it's, it's really kind of frightening when you think about it in those terms. Or if you prefer, if you could be, we could be at the end of McCoy's era and it's like writing for Pertwee in his final season. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I think it's fair to say that um, from the word go, you're a Doctor Who fan because obviously the, the listeners can't see this, but sitting behind you is a complete set of Target books, plus program guides, plus DVDs, plus Bernice Summerfield books, plus Funko Pops, plus action figures. Plus, yeah, yeah, I think the, I think you get the picture. Yeah, yeah. But but don't give my address for burglars. <laughs> no, definitely not. We should also point out you've got the one, was that the Clayton Hickman TARDIS round of wallpaper as well? Yes, yeah. I should have got that from my home office now, damn it. Is it oh. is it out? Is it not available anymore? Because um, I, I think I got it um, a few years ago, and it was it was really expensive. Oh, I don't know actually. I never even thought about it. But if I had, this would be. Well, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Go out and get it. <laughs> it helps focus Listen, your thoughts when you're when you're writing. Yeah, we are technically here to promote your work, not Clayton Hickman's work. But uh, <laughs> we'll give Clay a little mention since he is a lovely fella. So there we go. So. Doctor Who fan, when did you become a fan? Um, well, I remember that quite vividly because it was January 1970 um, and that coincided with John Pertry taking over from, from Patrick Troughton. Now, I think, though I have no real memories of it, um, but according to my parents, I did watch Doctor Who during Patrick Troughton, Troughton's era, um, although I can't remember much about it or anything about it at all. Um, but my mother said, oh, yes, you used to watch it when that funny little fella was um, <laughs> was the Doctor. So I kind of worked it out by a process of elimination that it must have been Patrick Troughton. But yes, yeah, January 1970. Brilliant. So I suppose that as the years went by, obviously you've established yourself as a writing career. Could you maybe give us a few highlights that uh, lead up to your work being broadcast in 2008? Yeah, well, I, I'd always wanted to be a writer and through luck and circumstance and fortune because you know you you meet these people who say oh i had a career path and i wanted to do this by such and such a date and then i wanted to do that and you think well that's just rubbish because with certainly something like television you just have to grab every opportunity when it comes along and even if it's not something you want to do you just do it um, to get the experience so I, i kind of started off as a researcher in documentaries um, working on a, um, a quite a big documentary for Channel 4 at the time in the sort of late 80s called Maggie's Children. And it was following a, a bunch of people who'd left school in 1979 when, when Thatcher came to power. Uh, and it followed their fortunes and misfortunes um, in, the, in the present day. Well, as in the 80s. Um, so I was a researcher given the responsibility of you know, looking into the, the lives of the people who um, haven't fared very well during Thatcherism. Um, and I was living in Leeds um, and, and I had to live on this pretty, pretty dodgy estate uh, to get the trust of the people who live there because, you know, the cameras were coming in to shoot every month or so. Um, so I just, I was there for six months all the time. Um, and it was, it was certainly a baptism of fire because that was my first job as a researcher in documentaries. 
Um, and I went from there, really. I, I, they gave me a full-time position, worked on various documentaries, but always wanted to get into drama. So I ended up as a script editor on, on Emmerdale, um, wrote stuff along the way, scenes here and there. And then I was offered a job script editing on Casualty by the BBC. A, a script was pulled and, and in that last minute, and they said, oh, my God, what will we do? Can you do something, Keith? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll write it. So I wrote an episode, it went down quite well. Uh, they gave me another one to write. And then afterwards I thought, okay, I'll do that full time. I can, I think, hopefully, you know, take the plunge. Um, and I did, and I worked on EastEnders, More Casualty, um, a whole load of stuff really um, throughout the, the 90s into the early 2000s. And then I just got fed up with, with writing and soap opera because obviously you become a writer because you feel you've got something to say about life and you want to comment on this, the society around you. Uh, and so um, I took another plunge and thought, okay, I don't want another contract when East End just came around. And, you know, it was really kind of concerning because that was going from earning a lot of money to earning nothing. But I wanted to pursue my own projects. Uh, and it took about five years to, to, to develop a, a kind of portfolio of, of work of my own. Uh, and one of them was this uh, uh, a series I'd, uh, I'd sort of uh, written the pilot for called Angel Cake. Uh, ITV picked it up and then said it wasn't for them. No, actually, BB, the independent sector of the BBC took it up and said, actually, no, it's not for us. And ITV took it up and asked, say, oh, we don't want a series, but could you write it as a movie, a one-off uh, telefilm? Uh, I did that and we were all ready to go with Imelda Staunton and uh, the, the head honcho at the B uh, ITV said, oh, no, I don't think we can go with this. I don't think um, Imelda Staunton is ITV. I mean, who's Imelda Staunton? <laughs> and I had a conversation with her at the time when she said, look, I'd really love to do this project, but I've been offered a, a role in Harry Potter. Um, I think I should do that. And, yeah, I think you should. Uh, so she went off to do Harry Potter and the rest is history. Um, and... ITV dropped Angel Cake. Then the BBC took it up again and said, we maybe would like it as a series, but we'll make a sort of one-off film pilot. Uh, that's what they did. Sarah Lancashire was in it, Rita Tushingham. Um, and it did quite well. Um, they put money, the BBC put money into developing it. Uh, and then there was a change of change of stuff and, you know, the executives of the BBC and the new new broom swept clean and um, Angel Cake bit the dust, really. Um, but I... Ended up sort of doing Doc Martin and, and various other things. And again, um, there came a point um, when I thought, oh, do you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. But uh, it, Russell had seen my uh, Doctor Who, um, rather my Angel Cake film. And or he's seen the script, certainly, because I know my agent sent it to them. And I got a call out of the blue from the BBC saying, would you like to, to write for Doctor Who? So it was kind of, you know, a whole, it wasn't a straightforward journey to, to, to Doctor Who. I did lots of other things first. And I think that's what, you know, as a writer, don't go, don't become a writer because you, you want to write for Doctor Who. Become a writer because you want to write about the things that interest you. And if Doctor Who is, you know, something that interests you, then think about it. But don't just say, I, I just want to write for Doctor Who nobody will get a job as a writer on Doctor Who if you kind of haven't really kind of done other things as well yeah I think that's the key thing is you, you've got to write and tell stories and mm. the the fact that you want to tell Doctor Who stories can be a benefit further down the line because yeah absolutely there's a, sad as it may be there are more things to life than Doctor Who just a few <laughs> things but not a lot apparently apparently there are yeah <laughs> 
was um, Russell was Russell aware of um, how big a fan you were beforehand? Yes, because I I I'd, I'd met Russell kind of in corridors and that sort of thing, and then I met him because this was before, long before Doctor Who. Russell was a kind of you know a writer and uh, I think and a producer as well. Um, and then I met him at a ITV writers party where there was a lot of alcohol involved, and I just bought. I think it was I think it was the VHS of, of the Ice Warriors. I don't think it had gone to DVD then, and it came with a little sort of booklet. <laughs> and I, I was in London for that party, but I'd been shopping, and that was one of the things I bought. And so when we were sitting down chatting, I said, "Oh, I've just bought this." And he went, "Oh my God, you're a Doctor Who fan! Oh, wouldn't it be great if it was if it was brought back?" And yeah, little knowing that you know that a few years down the line, that's exactly what he'd do. But this was this must have been. The 90s or maybe the very early 2000s I, I just can't remember it was it was a long time ago that I do <laughs> I do know um so yeah um he did know I was a fan and when it came to Planet of the Ood he said in our original meeting ah oh, I've created a nice planet for you so that was that was a really nice thing to say mm, that's fantastic I think uh it ties in very well so it must have been you know fascinating sort of here we go it's TV's biggest hit and here you are being invited to be a part of it and what more did you get in your brief well they, they called it a shopping list of things and it was really just like you know a couple of words that sort of thing there was no kind of real detailed um breakdown of what they wanted uh it was ice planet ood humans humans as, as the bad guys uh there's a big brain somewhere uh so it was it was as vague and as specific as, as that, really. And they just said, you know, go away. Maybe use the characters that were in the original Ood story, some of the characters who survived. Um, and very quickly, that was kind of, we've knocked that, not, that, knocked that one on the head because it, it just didn't feel right to be using those characters again. I think there, I mean, I think it's a fab story. Did it change much along the way? Oh, yeah, it did lots. I mean, originally, I did in, involve people from the original story, though, whose names I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've long forgotten, uh, and it was there was more a sort of focus on Frenzy of the Ood. So it was how, how the Friends of the Ood were sort of infiltrating um, the, the Ood organisation, Ood operations, and I remember Russell had said, you know, think about the planet as, as being similar to sort of underground, as in uh, Caves of Androzani, and. I did go along with that path just for a couple of sort of treatments, but then again, it, it, they said, "Oh no, it's, it's, we, we don't need that." So yeah, it did, it did go through quite a few changes. So when it went to go before the cameras, were you there to watch any of it? I was there for uh, one day's recording, and we went to. Well, first of all, I was in the the, the studios. Uh, and they, they filmed the scene where the Ood are um, approaching um, the Doctor and Donna when they're locked in, in um, Halpin's office and handcuffed. Uh, and that was... Do you know, it's really interesting you asked that question. I was so excited to go down, but actually watching filming isn't particularly exciting. When you've got nothing to do, when you're not involved, I always feel as, as the writer that, you know, my work's done and it's, everybody's got a job to do. And they say, they come down and watch, but you feel kind of like an intruder, really, because someone has to look after you at some point, And that's kind of distracting them from the job they're supposed to be doing. So um, I, I've never really been a big fan of going to watch things being shot. Um, but of course, because it was Doctor Who, yes, of course, I wanted to go down 
What was more interesting for me than seeing it being filmed was the fact that someone said, would you like to come and look around the TARDIS set? So I said, oh yes, I'd love to. But all the lights were out, so it was in darkness, which made it even more spooky, really. Um, so it was wonderful because it was such a big set. It really was big. You know, whereas in the old day it was a, like the corner of a studio somewhere, but this was this was a proper proper, proper built set. Yeah. Um, although the TARDIS console itself was just dreadful, it was so kind of cheap and tassy, tatty looking. I was I'm quite disappointed with that, but that's the magic of television, isn't it, really? Yeah, I take it that when you were doing the early drafts, you, you were writing for Penny Carter rather than Donna. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't until the very very last draft that Russell said that it was it, it was Catherine Tate. Um, and that's and, and all sorts of things sort of fitted after that because I, I, I did struggle with the character of Penny. You know, they, they said who she was, but I mean that's the, the that's a difficult thing about it. certainly when you're say you're writing for one of the soaps when a new character comes in, you've got you, you've got several different writers writing for that character, and of course even though you have a biog for them you're still going to be putting in a bit of what's in your head about them and it's never going to be the same as the, what the others are writing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was quite difficult to write for, for Penny, even though it was really Catherine Tate's character and so obviously Catherine Tate's character, really. Yeah, I don't know. Were you in the west of Scotland when you wrote this? Or? No, I think I just... I was when it, was tra- when it, be- it came to transmission time. But I wrote it when I was living in Yorkshire. Um, and then around about the time after it had finished, there was st- I, was st- I still had to go down a couple of times to Wales uh, for various meetings. Uh, so I, f- I flew down from, from Glasgow uh, to, to Cardiff. And well, I don't think they do that anymore. But yeah, it was, it was really nice to sort of jump on a plane and <laughs> go, go down to Wales. Go to work in Doctor Who. I know. That's, that's just magical. And you know, the thing that really strikes me because at the time I was the editor of the Rutherglen Reformer newspaper and we had a freelance photographer and she came in and she was absolutely raving about this script saying that particularly the comment on the slave trade is so where do your clothes come from and she just thought that was just such brilliant cutting incisive writing and it's always stuck with me that you know somebody who's a casual TV viewer actually picked up on that and um so I just thought I'd uh, flag that up to just show you that these 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 wee things are all in there. I think one of the one of the impressive things about certainly about um, about Russell and there are many impressive things is that he 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 made Doctor Who um, populist rather than, than just popular. You know, people who didn't watch Doctor Who watched it in the in those early days because it was. It, it struck a resonance. It was about, you know, the, the character of Rose in the beginning was about a, 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 an ordinary girl f- from London. And so, yeah, and, and lots of people could identify with, with that character, um, an ordinary girl who becomes extraordinary because of what she experiences. And, and I think, yeah, that was just really clever in, in Russell's writing that he was able to bring a whole audience on board who maybe ordinarily wouldn't have watched Doctor Who. And I think, you know, you, you have to, the best, for me, the best Doctor Whos were the ones that had some kind of foot, some some foot in reality. I know it's, it's it's science fiction, but there has to be something about something about the world we live in reflected in in, in that science fiction, and that, and that's the best of science fiction, isn't it? That that's something that reflects what's going on in in our own society today. Yeah, and what a cast you were given as well. I and mean, I think you've got 
obviously you've got Tim McInerney's Mr. Halpin. And I mean, I still think that Paul Case, uh, sorry, Paul Clayton as yeah. Mr. Bartle is brilliant. Just that guy's got such a great voice and Big Finish, of course, have made him a regular in Torchwood with their spin-off series. He was good. Um, and think, and another thing that's really clever about Russell is how, um, you, you know, um, you can bring a, a, a minor character in who has, who doesn't have a lot to say, but while he or she is in that, those scenes, uh, you kind of, as a, as a viewer, you're, you're gripped. You want to know what what happens, and that's 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 wonderful television when you care about everybody, not just the the main characters. And, and yeah, he gets sort of uh, killed pretty pretty early on, but it's kind of it's it's something you remember. How did you find writing for the Ood? I don't think it was difficult because for 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 quite a while they were kind of an unknown force in the episode. He wasn't really sure what was going on with them. And the only really, uh, the only one who really had any independence and thought was was um, Ood um, Sigma. Um, but I, I found I was I was always drawn to the Ood because of their kind of mysteriousness and uh, and, and those first two um, the two hander that they that, that they were in and the fact that they were a self professed slave society, which always that 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 really puzzled me. Is I mean, why would anyone ever? Want to sort of relish being a slave, um, so that was all, that was always something I was interested in in, in working on, and, and, and it was by, by coincidence that I, I got that episode to sort of give them a, a backstory. So um, I was very pleased about that. But yeah, no, I, I was just I was happy to write for them. I, 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 there weren't any problems in it. Um, certainly, I really enjoyed writing for them when it came to novelising the script. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the novelisation part. How did the first approach come about? Was it something you'd expected when they started to do target books again, or was it something more you'd hoped for? Well, it was something I'd hoped for. In fact, um, when I think it was I mean last year when um, uh, three or four of them were published, I remember talk, I was talking to my agent, and he was saying, "Oh yeah, they're, they're producing a, a new target books of Doctor Who stories." I said, "Oh, I wanted to, I wanted to mine," and he said, "Do you?" And I went, "Yeah." And he said, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll approach them." So that and that's what happened. So they, he approached them just at a time when they were looking for the next batch to to uh, to, to to write. Uh, and um, he said, "Yeah." So we had a chat, and yeah, they, they said, "Yes, do it." Nasty. And it was it kind of as quickly as that, really. So, how, what was your process for this? Was it a case of go back to broadcast scripts, or was it previous versions to bring in things that? Are- in the beginning, because obviously writing prose and writing a novel is, is, is vastly different from writing a script, I wanted, and I wanted to use more of my imagination in it. I, I relied on that um, in the, the first stages of the writing, or certainly the drafting of uh, the plotting of it. Um, I relied on my memories of of the television version rather than looking at any scripts or watching the dvd and i did you know once i started i i looked at the, the tv show and it was amazing how much i'd kind of forgotten about it um and there were elements that were you know either cut out at, a, at an early stage of uh the, the planning of it um at a draft st- uh, storyline stage and some things that were cut out um at a script stage um and there were things that i kind of liked and wanted to wanted to put back so I could do that in, in, in the novelization. 
Uh, and, and really, that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to do it, because I felt, you know, it was a, a, a deeper, darker, richer story than perhaps in, was told in the 45 minutes. I think that's the thing that comes across quite clearly, the fact you can add a lot more to to the characters and, and indeed to, sort of, to get a real feel for them. And, and particularly Donna, I think she comes across so well. I wanted at a kind of early stage of the novelization, I, I was toying with going down the lines, uh, the same path that David Whittaker had done with Doctor and the Daleks, where he told the story from Ian's point of view solely. Uh, and I thought, oh, maybe I could do that from Donna's point of view, but it kind of got a bit messy, um, <laughs> certainly for me. Um, so I just kind of put that aside. Uh, but I wanted to kind of have a lot of what was going on in Donna's head at, at the, throughout the, the episode, the, the, the episode, the book. Um, <laughs> and that was one of the joys of writing for it because I could um, also write more for the Ud because... And that, that wasn't without its own problems because it's all very well when you're writing a TV um, uh, episode that, you know, you don't have to do a lot of explaining and they just are, oh, there they are, what they're doing, they're doing. Uh, and as a, as a viewer, you kind of get on board with it or you don't. But certainly when you're writing a novel, you really have to explain why somebody is doing something. And for, for a long time, the youth were kind of mysterious in the sense that nobody knew what they were thinking. Um, so I was able to kind of have a lot more of the, the internal life of, of, of a nude uh, from, from an early stage. Yeah, and I think you had a lot of fun with uh, the transformation of Mr. Halpin as well. Yeah, yes. I think, you know, I, 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 I do have a... I, I do love comedy um, and I love writing comedy, but I also like writing dark and, and, and dismal stuff <laughs> as well. I get a kick out of that. Um, and I think because I... I wrote a, um, a horror film a couple of years ago, and that was kind of, again, something that I wasn't comfortable with. It was not in my comfort zone, and I, but I do believe in kind of rising to challenges. And I do think that if I hadn't written that horror film and the director hadn't said, no, go on, do this, go on, just do it, do it, push it more, push it more. I don't think I would have been as graphic in the novel as I, as I kind of ended up being. But um, yeah, I, I like the darkness. And I think Doctor Who does dark stuff really well. Um, I think there's, you know, there's nothing to be. It's a safe darkness because we know that the Doctor's always going to triumph in the end, nine times out of ten. When I spoke to Phil Ford a few weeks ago about doing the Waters of Mars, he said that he particularly enjoyed that the fact that he could put in some of the more horrific elements that had been taken out for TV, and yeah. he was just allowed to go a little more off the leash. Obviously, not full gore. Yeah. Uh, like a Tarantino type gore but the fact that um, it's all in the mind's eye and uh, sort of exactly. we know that and we all like that I mean when we read the Target books when we were younger this thing, we quite like that that sort of like the squish of hands like when the robots of death are doing their things and and talons of Wang Chiang so I think it's quite nice to, to sort of pay homage to that in a way to sort of to capture that that grisly yeah. feel but um, just pushing it a little bit on from what we got on TV Absolutely I just think that um you know, going back to my own childhood, I started watching Doctor Who when I was seven and I was terrified. I mean, bedwetting terrified a couple of times. I actually did have nightmares and went to bed. And my mother said, oh, my God, it's that programme. He's never watching that programme again. I said, oh, please, no, I will. I promise I'll, be, I'll try not to wet the bed. I'll be, I'll be really good. Um, so there is that kind of horror sense that 
you know, it, it is terrible and it's awful to watch. And I did do a lot of that, but I kept doing that. We enjoy being horrified and terrified. <laughs> yeah, Mary Whitehouse never seemed to get that fact, did she? No, she didn't, but I always felt sorry for that woman. I don't think she kind of appreciated life as much as she could have done. Yeah, yeah. Have a Just go and have a big glass of wine, maybe. Just yeah, let it go. Chill pill, <laughs> chill pill, dear. Um, yeah, what was the highlight of the whole process for you? I think it was that writing, writing from you's point of view. Um, and I kind of got quite emotional about it at times because I just I just felt that awful kind of you know oppression uh, that they, they they'd endured at the hands of humanity so um it was it was nice to be able to sort of give them uh give them proper characters um and a sense of a sense of who they were and what what they were about um so yeah that, I think that was my, my biggest uh, joy of, of, of writing for it but also <clears throat> no I enjoyed I enjoyed writing for Donna as well um but the, the doctor's kind of less Less interesting to write for my, in my experience, uh, it's it's about the other people around him who who, who fascinate more. But I was, <clears throat> what what I kind of felt when I was writing it is how appropriate it was to be writing it now. I mean, whether that was just in my head or or it really did reflect what was going on in the world, because I saw when I was writing the character of Halpern, he became less Tim McInerney in my head and more Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. In fact, all, there's a line I get in about um, <clears throat> when he's bringing booze, again, you to bring booze in for the uh, the sales reps and he tells Solana that I can do this because I'm the boss. Um, so there was an element of that sort of party gate situation and, and then Friends of the Youth, I just kept thinking of Extinction Rebellion and so that line about them blocking the uh, the, the, fl- the the space lanes and everything was, was, was about that. So, you know, little did I think that all those years ago when originally writing it, that there would be so much that was still kind of appropriate or even more appropriate now. I love that. How did you find working with Steve Cole? Oh, great! He, he was—he's—he um, ve- knows exactly what he wants, and he was very helpful. Because even though I, you know, I've read the target books, I still kind of there were things that I didn't get right in the beginning. He said, "You know, you, you, you're, you're quickly—you're changing points of view within within a chapter here, and you, maybe you should think about not doing that." So that it was really good to have a guiding hand, um, and his knowledge is quite. Uh, <laughs> it's quite impressive. Yeah. I would imagine then that your family would be pretty delighted the fact that those books that you had all those years ago that are now behind you, and now there's another one to add there, and it says Planet of the Ood, Keith Temple. And nobody's ever going to yeah. take that away from you. No, not at all. And that is something I still, even when I was watching the TV show, my name came up on it. It was like, is that real? Is it me? It's it kind of... I felt very detached about it in a way that I don't feel the same about the, about the book. I, um, I, I mean, I, I did sweat blood and tears, certainly, because I, I, yes, I wanted to write the book and they said, write the book. But when I, then I sat down and thought, oh, my God, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Oh, um, so it was it was kind of in the beginning was a, a real struggle to, to get the motivation to get excited and get into it, um, into the writing. But yeah. I'm the kid who used to go into town every week in the hope that there'd be another new Doctor Who book out, because in those days, yeah, you didn't really know when they were coming out. So I was a member of the Target Book Club and they'd send these kind of terrible, terrible photocopied kind of vague pictures of a, of a book that you could just barely see. Um, 
So it was, it was a nice surprise to go into town and and, all, and see those names like Terence Dix and David Whitaker and Malcolm Hulk and 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 little did I ever think that my name would be on a on a writer's list of target books one day, 50, 50 years time. <laughs> well, you've been there, you've done it, you've achieved it, and now you can look forward to seeing it in your local Waterstones and other bookshops. It's fantastic, Keith. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real delight. Pleasure, Kenny. Thank you for um, for asking me on. Keith, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And we are hoping that perhaps one day Russell might return to you and say, write another one because you've got yes. a great record with that one. I know, absolutely. Um, yeah, as I said at the top, it's, it was it was it was nice to revisit it because it was proper Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, not concerned with any kind of other agenda other than being entertaining and scary and making you think a little bit, mm-hmm. but not too much. <laughs> exactly. We don't want to get your head hurting. So you mentioned earlier, Dave, about stories we'd like to see. Um, let's let's pick one for each Doctor to start with okay. for new series Doctors. So for a ninth Doctor story, what would you fancy seeing? I'd be quite partial to perhaps um, something as... I mean, because I really like the end of the world and the Unquiet Dead. So possibly the Unquiet Dead, because I think Mark Gatiss could do some, you know, good stuff with that. Add some horror to it with the gas and the gelf and things like mm-hmm. that. And I think there's potential for there to add more in. Yeah, I can imagine the Unquiet being Unquiet Dead being novelised in a sort of Dickens pastiche type style, almost. Yep. Illustrations um, as well. Um, my my ninth Doctor pick would be, I'm afraid, would be Bad Wolf Stroke Parting of the Ways because I'm the the, the little buzz that I got yesterday um, with the new books arriving and uh, you know as, as we said last or last week as you know there's the episode released. Um, I was just reminded of like the buzz of being an early the early stage of my my sort of Doctor Who fan career in, in Paisley in the early eighties and and the excitement of trying to collect the novelizations of the sort of significant ones like Planet the Spiders or Dalek Invasion of Earth or whatever. So I, with that in mind, I would like um, Parting the Ways because one of the very first novels I bought with my own money was The Tenth Planet. And the first thing I did was skip to the end and read The Regeneration. <laughs> so I would like Parting of the Ways purely for that reason because it would it's... It's the um, it's the significant key episodes of that you know more of the god you know obviously like, there's a lot of significant key episodes in that series but that's that's the one that I that I would like if I was if I had to pick one it'd be partly the ways bad both okay that's a good nomination for the tenth Doctor I just had a quick think about this and there's obvious ones to do the likes of like I mean. The girl in the fireplace, blink. You know the big, you know the the, the fan favourites. But I think something that probably would go down really well, well, I know with me, would be with somebody who we met recently, Matt Jones, to do the Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit. I think that would be superb because it's such a dark story on TV. His new adventure is fantastic that he wrote, uh, and I would say that it's one that I would absolutely love to read. Particularly how you do the the devil and things like that, and realise yeah. them. And more rude. That's a really good pick, actually, because there's some good proper horror in that one as well. And on the printed page, you could go a little bit further with that and make it a little bit more, you know, disturbing and unpleasant. I think in the past when we talked about this, I said I would want the next Doctor, obviously because it's my favourite Modern Who episode. I would still say that, but I think if I was going to try and go 
you know, try and go a bit, you know, off piste as it were for my own preferences. I, th I think something like the Doctor's Daughter, or even something like the Lazarus Experiment, or maybe you know, or the Idiot's Lantern would be interesting because they've done yeah. quite a few of these. Not the thing that what's been good with the Tenth Doctor books recently is that they've done. They haven't gone for the big obvious ones. Um, so it'd be nice to get something like that. I mean, if I wasn't... But then, you know... Human nature would be a fun one, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to read that one to, day. But they'd have to call it Family of Blood, you know, so as not to cause confusion with the other Doctor, Doctor Who book called Human Nature. That would be interesting. Absolutely. So, obviously, my first pick is always going to be the next Doctor, but I think, if I'm being honest, I'd, I'd like... God, one of Gareth's you know, would be really good. Shakespeare Code would be amazing. Unicorn and the Wasp would be amazing, but I don't, I don't know if he'd be up for that. I think, um, no, I'm going to say that I'm going to say the Doctor's Daughter because I think that's another forgotten classic of proper Doctor Who in the mid seventies vibe. Good shout. Happy with that. I'd be more than happy to read it. And uh, if the BBC needs Stephen Greenhorn's email address, I've got it, so I can uh, drop my wee line. <laughs> okay, the Eleventh Doctor. I've got. I didn't even need to think about this one. For me, straight up, it's the Eleventh Hour because I just think it's such a brilliant story, a wonderful melding of what Russell's done with what Stephen wanted to do and mm. just pushes it to that new level. And the fact that, you know, the, the Doctor's so quickly established and for me, it's, it's just a no-brainer. I love the 11th hour. Yeah, that'd be a good one to do. And that ties in what I was saying about getting the significant books novelised. Um, I would like, um, what would I like from my I think of the stuff from his second series that I didn't like. So, I mean, the trouble is, so much of the Eleventh Doctor's books, they're part of the, the ongoing arc, and so every so often you've got one that's significant to that. So, a novelization of something like Let's Kill Hitler probably wouldn't work as well if they hadn't done A Good Man Goes to War or The Impossible Astronaut and all that sort of stuff. And of course, if they novelized The Impossible Astronaut, they'd have to be very careful about the cover imagery so they didn't too closely rip off the cover of Revelation um, by Paul <laughs> Connell, but maybe. Justice for Paul Connell. I'm going to think, let me a quick think for the 11th Doctor. I'm trying to think of one that out. Something like Amy's Choice was one of my favourites from his first series. Mm -hmm. So if I wasn't having the 11th hour, I would like Amy's Choice or The Lodger. But again, I don't know if Gareth would be up for doing that. Um, or maybe he'll let me do it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one because they are so buried in the arcs. Um, We've had Crimson Horror from his last series, haven't we? We have indeed, yes. No, I'm going to say Amy's Choice because that was my favourite episode in his first series apart from The Lodger and I think that's maybe, maybe more likely to get done and that's another one that I think has a bit more potential to be opened up. You know, the idea of the Dream Lord and all that sort of stuff, you could do a little bit more than they had time or the, the, the cash to do on the, on the, on the TV series. I, I like that, and I'm contradicting myself here as I always do, but from saying that I would like the the big epic ones to be done I think there's some of the as we've seen some of their books have come out some of the lesser thought of episodes you know they deserve their, their, their moment in the sun so let's have I agree with you on the 11th Doctor but let's have Amy's Choice as a backup Sounds good to me okay right let's move on to the era of PCAP uh, where mm. we've had the Eaters of Light uh, oh, the Zygon Invasion and Twice Upon a Time, so we've had three already. So that's not a bad start. I, see, I think it would be quite interesting to do something like 
flat line. So you've got a story that's set in five dimensions, but doing it on uh, effectively a two-dimensional page. And I think that would be really interesting to see how it translates. How would you do the boneless and bring them to life? That would be interesting. Yeah, very much so. You could you could um, you could do some quite postmodern sort of you know stuff with that um, if you're clever about it. Um, who wrote Flatline? I can't remember. Oh, that was uh, Jimmy Matheson, who of course done Mummy and Orient Express as well. I think. Of course. I'm sure Jamie could put his mind to it, but I, my pick, my my peak up pick. Obviously, I'm going to again talk about world enough in time and the doctor falls as the fan as the obvious fanboy significant one obviously you know there was reasons why i'd want to pick parting the ways but but my sort of favorite episode from the the 12th doctor's first series was into the dalek so that would that would be a good one get a dalek episode out because that's going to a book that's always going to sell they could they could expand a lot more on the thing that you know that the way it suddenly comes out of nowhere, it seems that the Doctor doesn't like soldiers. A few more lines about that, Clara, you know, maybe tying into the Time War or Trends of Law or whatever. Um, I, but obviously, there's real sort of proper sci-fi horror potential for all the mm-hmm. scenes as they, as they, you know, climb about inside the, the machine. So, um, yes, my 12th Doctor pick would be Into the Dalek. Excellent. Well, we know that uh, the writer, Mr. Phil Ford, has experience of novelising his work. So yes, let's have that one. And it gives us, a, gives us a Dalek book as well. Of course. Friend of the show, Phil Ford. Yeah. Who's obviously joined us previously to talk about Dreamland as well. So yes, let's uh, let's get him back on soon to talk about something else I've got in mind. Uh, OK, let's move on to the 13th Doctor. I've gone for one. I think it's got, I mean, well, I think that would be great fun to do perhaps over two volumes. You could do the whole of flux i think i would go for the haunting of the via diodati you've got cybermen in there so classic monster and um yeah. i think that i think it just would lend itself the gothic horror you could do it in a shelley style uh-huh well see it's interesting because my favorite jody episode's already been done really the witch finders that's my favorite uh, too <sighs> let me think i mean again there's, there's you've got problems here with certain arc episodes that maybe wouldn't work unless other books have been done at the same time the woman who fell to earth is it again get the the debut adventures and stuff out of the way that's that's an obvious one not sure if mr chibnall's ever written i know any pros have written the book i don't know if he had time to do it or the inclination i would yeah i would i would i would say that tying in what i was saying before about the the significant ones that that i liked collecting as a little boy but i think um i've got a soft spot for arachnids in the uk I think that would be a good one to do. Um, but again, that's another one where I've, I've, you know, I've seen sort of recurring sort of criticisms about certain aspects of the plot and certain ways it was resolved. But I think in a book, you know, that could be a really good sort of James Herbert pastiche, mm. almost in a lot of ways. There's a lot of potential there, you know, because it has yep. that contemporary setting and giant spiders. It could be really quite grotty and, and nasty, and something could be done about, you know, the, the, you know, the bit at the end. You know, people I've seen people criticise the fact that JW just, like, you know gases the spiders and it's like you know they could do something else to kind of soften that or you know pad it out a little bit or extend yeah. it so my obvious fanboy pick is going to be the one who felt it off but i think arachnids in the uk um because you could you know my radio yeah. times cover did that you know we we reference the sex pistols and it'd be quite interesting to see if anthony could reference the sex <laughs> pistols somehow maybe maybe perhaps of jody's face and like that you know, would be fun or like, like um the, the, the god save the queen image something yeah. like that would i think be quite interesting i should um charge him for that idea yeah, yeah, I think that, I think that's what. Well, obviously, I mean, 
Fugitive of the Jadun would fly off the shelves if that was not like Yes, true. But I was thinking perhaps a bit arc heavy. I like your idea of Flux being done over a couple of volumes, though. That would work. Cool. My other idea right. is a box set of um, Christmas novelizations. Obviously, we've got Christmas Invasion already. I could do could do like one for each Doctor in there. That'd be quite nice around Christmas time. Definitely. That's a great idea. Get 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 on get on the phone to Stephen Cole. Trust me, I will be. I'll be speaking to him very soon <laughs> for pieces of eight about uh, something. So, Ken, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> okay, hit me. Um, literally, just as we're as we're as we're finishing our recording here. So yeah. I snuck a quick look at the, the official BBC Doctor Instagram and they have announced for January 2024 novelizations of the three David Tennant Catherine Tate reunion specials. Oh fantastic. This is yes. fantastic well, news. Star Beast, yeah. The Star Beast. So I'm gonna have to <laughs> tell me these live even more space even more space on my shelf. So the Star Beast has been novelized by Gary Russell. Oh fantastic. There's an episode easy, a pal of the show. Yep. Wild Blue Yonder being novelised by Mark Morris. Oh, another pal. Yes, excellent. This is brilliant. And, He's perfect for that. And, yep. And the Giggle is being nominated, nominated, novelised by James Goss. Oh. So there we go. So that's quite exciting. Um, <laughs> just coming in just as we're, we've timed that incredibly well with our recording. So yeah, so listeners... There's some speculation there that there's already and, and there's already going to be some new novelizations. So that's 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 very exciting. <laughs> covers covers yet to be revealed, but yeah, gosh, that's fantastic. I mean, hopefully, this could mean a lot more on the way. I mean, just obviously we've just been talking about them, but that is a, I did not yeah. see that coming, and I'm delighted. Me either. I, I I would have expected Blu-ray Steelbook announcement before. Yeah. You know, visualizations. Um, so that's that's glorious news, Dave. I thoroughly enjoyed yes. it. And good chat. Always good to chat. Target novelizations and what we'd like to Definitely. see and speculate. Definitely. But um, so yes, thank so thank you for your company. Always a pleasure, Kenny. Thank you to Keith for taking the time to talk to us. But Dave, before we go, have you got a question for me? Oh, if I must, Kenneth, what song are you going to talk to us with today? Well, David, I'm glad you asked me that because I was thinking. Hmm, Ood, there's not many songs about spaghetti faced monsters, but um, I remember the first time I saw them, you know, I just looked and thought, wow, they're impressive, and just had this feeling, just like something kind of ooh about them. So we're going for <laughs> Girls Aloud and something kind of ooh. Listeners, thanks very much. We'll be back next week. We'll be having a chat with Peter Harness about his novelization of the Zygon Invasion. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. I've got to heat it up.